teaching. And in this passage that we're coming to today, this story about Jesus and one of his encounters, one of his earliest encounters in his ministry, we get one of Jesus' boldest statements. And he was never one for pulling punches, right? We've seen that already. He comes straight at the issue. And this morning in our text, what he says is that unless somebody is born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is a summary way of, of referring to all the things that God has promised his people. Everything Jesus came to do by his life and his death is focused on the kingdom of God, on a world in which, in which we love what we ought to, in which we're at rest and at peace because we trust God's provision for us, a world in which there's no sorrow, no threat of death, no tears anymore. Jesus is saying, I came to establish that world, but no one gets in it unless first they're born again. So what we have this morning is a passage with extremely high stakes. Whether you have been a Christian for a long time or are considering Jesus for the first time, everything about Christianity hinges on being born again. And what we want to do this morning is come to a better sense of what that even means. To cut through things we might associate with those words the sort of fogginess that might hang over them because of what we've experienced or what we assume. Because Jesus puts being born again at the heart of what it is to be a Christian, to be attached to him, to have hope in his kingdom, because being born again is necessary for everybody who wants to attach themselves to him, because it's that essential, we can't treat it like it's just some sort of church speak. That's probably what many of us think of when we hear born again. It goes right along with stuff like, you know, let go and let God, these sort of trite phrases that we've inherited but that don't have any power. Or maybe, maybe you think of the born-agains as a kind of radical branch of Christians. We can't afford to think of that, not if it's essential for everybody. Born-agains aren't some sort of fringe group who are just more serious, more radical than anybody else. Not, according, not if we're using the term like Jesus did. We can't afford to associate it only with those who've had really serious life problems and have been transformed. Those who have come out of a background of crime or, or, or addiction of one sort of another and then had transformation overnight. Can't be just those folks who get born again. Not if Jesus is saying everybody's got to be born again. It can't be a label that's claimed for political purposes. How many of you in here born again, that's your first thought? Something presidents have to say about themselves in order to get elected. Or how many of you think of it more as a label that's chosen easily but doesn't actually have any effect? Not maybe not maybe just not just for political purposes, but born again is something that is something that somebody uses that's a phrase that people use to refer to some sort of experience that they had at a religious meeting one time. Something that happened to me then, but doesn't necessarily have any sort of living reality. For Jesus, this is an indispensable reality for every Christian. So a lot hangs on this passage this morning. What we want to do is try to understand what he means by it. We want to understand the need for the new birth. What, why he's insisting it's necessary. Then we want to understand, we want to understand where he goes from there with the, the hope of new birth. In the, in the middle of this passage, there's this nugget that helps us explain why and how we can hope to experience what Jesus is talking about when he tells Nicodemus that he's got to be born again. And then, and then at the end, we want to point ahead using this text, but also looking at it next week, 
on one of the ways to tell that you've been born again. What is the fruit of a new birth? Where does it show up? That's where we're headed this morning. I want to begin by reading the story. So please stand with me in honor of God's word as I read. I'm going to read from uh, John chapter 2, verse 23, and then I'm going to carry all the way through to verse 15 of chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Chapter 2 comes to an end right after Jesus has cleaned out the temple. That's the story we looked at last week. And it, it ends with a sort of summary of what happens after Jesus does that. He hangs around in Jerusalem during the Passover feast for, for a few more days, and apparently he's doing lots of other amazing things that are attracting attention. And what we're told is that many people believed in him because of the powerful things they saw him doing. That's not so surprising, right, given the things that we know Jesus was doing. What's interesting here is that John says, even though they believed in him, Jesus knew better. That Jesus didn't entrust himself to them, even though they seemed to trust him, because Jesus could see into their hearts, and he knew What was in man? Now, whatever that means, whatever that means, it's not a good thing. It raises a question that the next couple of chapters are meant to answer. What is it that's in man that Jesus can see straight to? What is it that is in man that needs to be fixed? What's the underlying problem that's in everybody that Jesus came to heal and transform? That's the question I think that that the end of chapter 2 raises for us. And it's what sets up Jesus' Jesus encounter with this man named Nicodemus. 
Nicodemus is going to be one of the test cases, one of the, expo- one of the examples of what it is for Jesus to see what's in somebody, to see through the outside to the inside, know that faith isn't what it may seem, and call that person to what they really need, the kind of transformation that only Christ can give them. Nicodemus is a perfect case study for this, because if there was anybody, if there was anybody who on the outside didn't look like they needed much from Jesus, it was Nicodemus. The way he's described for us says it all. He was a Pharisee, for example. This is a group of uber-holy people, so holy they believed that their, that their calling was to prepare the nation for the coming of the Messiah by cleaning up their act. The Pharisees were those who believed that, that before the kingdom of God comes, Israel needed to be renewed and made more holy and that they were going to lead the nation that way by, by going over and above even the requirements of the Old Testament. They added a bunch of layers to them. They knew themselves by their holiness. Nicodemus wasn't just a Pharisee either. He was also, he's also identified as a ruler of the Jews. Uh, some of your versions may say something about part of the Jewish ruling council. It's probably a reference to this group called the Sanhedrin. That was sort of the, they were the, the cultural and religious custodians of what was going on in Israel. Sort of fell to them to give uh, guidance for the nation, to try to call the people to the right paths. Nicodemus was the cream of the crop. He was a model citizen. He was the best of the best. That's what we're meant to, to take from this description of him. He's the kind of person that if, if Jesus was to find a kindred spirit among any of the Jews when he arrived, this would, be, this would have been the guy. It's not clear why he came to Jesus. Maybe he wanted more insight. He identifies Jesus as a teacher. Maybe that's why he came. He thought, Jesus is going to help me understand something a little bit better. He's going to add to what I already know. Maybe he came for comrade, from camaraderie or for, uh, for, for mutual admiration. I don't know. We're not told. But whatever reason he came to Jesus, surely he wasn't expecting what he got. So what he got when he approaches Jesus is not an answer to his question, any implied question in his statement. What he got was Jesus cutting straight to the heart and telling him, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. In his mind, the way to get to the kingdom of God, the way to usher it in, have a place in it, clean up your act. My act's clean. Hopefully by my act being clean, I can inspire other people's acts to get clean, and then God will come. Jesus says, you got to be born again. Nicodemus doesn't immediately get it. Maybe he's even offended by his words. I read Nicodemus' response as kind of sarcastic. You know, oh, well, what am I supposed to do? Crawl up into my mama's belly and come back out again? People can't get born again. What's Jesus talking about? Nicodemus' response might be a little snarky, but it's understandable. This isn't what he came for. This, isn't what he, this, is, this doesn't make sense to him in his categories. What are you talking about being born again? That's the key question, I think. What's this need that Jesus calls, calls out? Well, I mean, I think the first and most obvious thing to say about it is that it is, it is something that everyone needs. Nicodemus needs what everyone needs, and that is a hard reset. The image of, the image of being born again, what it presupposes that there was lifelessness before. What you need is a new life. You don't need to clean up your act. You need to be made new. That's a radical implication, especially for somebody like Nicodemus. Again, this is the guy who had it all together. He's the cream of the crop. The implication is that if this guy needs to be born again, if he needs new life because he doesn't have life already, then, then everybody 
needs to be born again. Of all people, he's the one who gave signs of having some sort of life already. He isn't somebody who'd lived a a radical life of rebellion. He's not somebody who'd sort of blown through all of his resources or learned by experience that there's nothing out there to satisfy and comes to God from that place of emptiness. No, he comes from a position of strength. If he needs to be born again, then what everybody needs is not just some sort of fresh start. Born again, Jesus is talking about, can't be like a New Year's resolution kind of born again where, you know, I let myself go a little bit last year, but this year, New Year's Day, I am turning over a new leaf. I'm going to be born again. That's, that's not what he's talking about. He needs life because there wasn't life. And this is a radical implication. Because I think what many of us think about, religious, about, about our religious needs, about what people need from religion, we think, that, we think of people as something like houses. Here's what I mean. Uh, so right now, at my house, where, where we live, a few blocks that way, is right in between two construction sites. It's like Christmas morning for my boys. We're surrounded by construction. Their, their fascination with construction is a great uh, sort of win for those who believe that, that nature trumps nurture, right? Because I couldn't tell you. I can barely tell you the difference between a Phillips head and a flathead screwdriver. But my boy can tell you the difference between an excavator, a front-end loader, a backhoe, and a bulldozer. And don't confuse them. They are not synonyms. So we've got these two houses right on either side of us. One of them was purchased um, last year. And they had hoped to fix it up, but they realized as soon as they got in there, I guess, that it was too far gone. Bulldozed it. That's how far gone that house was. So it's a big, empty lot right now. The house on the other side of us is probably just as old, if not older, than the one that got bulldozed. But it looks good. The construction they're doing is is raising up part of the back roof to add a room, maybe, or a master suite. I don't know. We haven't been invited to look at it yet. (laughs) But they've been doing something on the back of the house. They just sort of added something to an otherwise really good-looking house. And I think we often think about what people need from religion in similar terms. Now, there may be some people whose lives are so far gone that they just need to be bulldozed and start over again. That's the born-again type, right? But then there's just a lot of people whose houses just need a fresh coat of paint, maybe some updates to the kitchen, I don't know, an extra built-out attic to add a master suite. But they've got good bones. They're sound overall, even tasteful. Now, if that's, if, if that's an accurate way of looking at what people need from God, either maybe some of them need to be bulldozed, but others just need a little bit of update, then surely Nicodemus, of all people, would fall into the update side, right? To the, maybe some updates to the, to the appliances or to, to the paint colors, but he's good overall. So don't miss the fact that Jesus starts with him and says to him, you must be born again. Before you can get into the kingdom of God, we need to do some demolition. We have got to wipe out this structure you've built for yourself, thinking that you were sound when you really weren't. That's part of what he means. Jesus means that, but Jesus saying that everybody needs new birth is a Jesus leveling the playing field. It's him saying there is only new construction in the kingdom of God. But I think we can go even deeper than that. What does he mean? He means that everybody needs a hard reset. They need life because they don't have it yet. But what kind of life do they need? What is he saying? What, what is it? What is this transformation that he's saying Nicodemus and everybody else needs? Well, that's the real question. 
I think the key is, is when Jesus restates his position. So you know in, G, in verse 3, Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus doesn't get it. So he asked Jesus essentially, sarcastically maybe, but essentially he's asking him to clarify. And in the next verse, verse 5, Jesus says basically the same thing, but he changes one little thing. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, same phrase, ends in the same way, cannot enter the kingdom of God. But that, that middle clause is the key. Instead of unless one is born again, he says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Ah, oh, so that gets us. That's the key. What does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? Whatever that means is what everybody needs, even Nicodemus, even each one of us. What does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? I think clearly enough, it means a change in some sort of, some sort of fundamental change in who you are. Jesus says, you know, later in the next verse, he says that things that are born of flesh are flesh. That's one kind of being, one kind of identity. Things born of the Spirit are a different kind of thing, different identity. So it's fundamental to who you are, but what is it? Some have have claimed that it's baptism plus getting the Holy Spirit. The water is a reference to Christian baptism. But that seems to be out of place. There's no discussion of baptism here. Um, There's no discussion of baptism as having anything to do with changing you. The only baptism we've seen so far is John's baptism. And it was just about expressing a desire to repent. It wasn't about doing anything to you. So it seems like it's out of place. And to me, the bigger reason it can't be baptism is that he assumes Nicodemus would know what he's talking about. Later on in the passage, he says, you're a teacher of Israel. You're an expert in the law, and you don't get what I'm talking about here. That's a significant clue. Whatever it is that he's talking about when he says water and spirit must be back in the Old Testament because Nicodemus was expected to have understood it. I think following that, that clue takes us to the heart of what he's referring to here. And it's so important, it's so helpful that I want you to turn there. Don't often do this, don't often do a lot of flipping around. We've got more than we can cover in the passage itself, but, but this, one, this one's worth you flipping to. I want you to flip over to Ezekiel chapter 36. Because what we're going to see here is one of, one, of the, one of my favorite promises in all the Old Testament, one of the foundational promises for Israel and what they were hoping for, the sort of new life that God had promised to give them, despite, their, despite the sin of their past, despite the way they had often turned away from God to other, to other false gods, God promises them something beautiful in Ezekiel chapter 36. And it's basically the water and spirit language that Jesus is using here now. Look at verses 24 to 27 especially. God promises Israel, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. There's the water part. Not baptism. A promise that God is going to sprinkle clean water on you. A picture of cleansing. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. From all the things that you've done that you can't undo, from all the things that you've worshipped that have let you down time and again, the things you've preferred to me, I'm going to cleanse you from all of that, taking that away. That's the water. Now look at verse 26. This is the Spirit. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
I think that's what Jesus means when he says you've got to be born by water and spirit. You've got to have happen to you what God promised would happen to his people back in Ezekiel chapter 36. You've got to be cleansed from your sins. Something has got to happen that makes cleansing, permanent cleansing possible. And then you've got to be made new, not just have the old stripped away. You need to have something new brought in, a new motivating factor in your life, or a, a, a new way of thinking and feeling and doing, and uh, something, something that's summarized by this promise of a new heart, something the Spirit gives you. The promises of Ezekiel 36 amount to a promise that Israel would be what God always wanted them to be. When he says that this new heart is going to give you the ability to walk in my ways, to obey my statutes, think to what we know of, as if you're familiar with, with the teachings of the Old Testament or even Jesus referring back to the Old Testament, he's asked at one place, what's the law? Summarize the law for me. And he summarizes all God's statutes, all the things that this passage says we're going to be brought to obey as a command to love God with everything you are. Love him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, with every ounce of your being. Love him. And love your neighbor as yourself. What we need is a transplant of heart from one that's locked in on ourselves, on what we get from God, from other people, out of life. Into a heart that is locked in on Christ, on what he offers us, on who God is for us in his promises and from that place into love for each other so that we're freed up to not protect what's ours, but to give ourselves away because nothing that really matters can be taken from us anyway. That's what he's referring to in Ezekiel 36. So what he's telling Nicodemus he needs is not more holiness, not some sort of new insight that Jesus might teach him that's going to help him sort of bring his worldview together. No, what he needs is a different reason for doing the things he's doing. What he's implying here is that you can do a lot of really good things. You can be what looks like a great person. You can give away a lot of your stuff to other people. You can constantly be serving them. You can be a quintessential rule follower, type A, locked in on what you've got to do and doing everything that you're locked in on. And you can be doing it not because you love God or because you love other people, but because you love yourself. Because what you get from that is a better reputation, something that gives you some satisfaction, to be known as a kind of person who does these things. Ultimately, in other words, you can end up doing a lot of good-looking things for the same sort of self-serving reasons that people end up killing each other, murdering each other, stealing from each other. You can end up doing it because you love yourself. And the only way to get to doing good things, not because, not because you love yourself, but because you love the, your maker and those who were made in his image. The only way to get to that place is to have a brand new heart put at the center of your being. That's it. You need a new set of tastes so that the things God calls you to taste good. They sound right. You love them. They're beautiful to you. They're ultimately a way of expressing a love for God that's at the core of who you are. That's what this new birth looks like. God isn't a threat to fear or a resource to be tapped, but a person to love. And this is great news for you. 
wherever you sit this morning, this is great news for you. It's great news for you if you think your life is too far gone, that you're sort of past saving, that even bulldozing and rebuilding isn't possible for you. You're wrong. You're wrong. God can make you new. That's the promise here. Everyone needs new birth. There's only one way to get it. It comes from God. That means it can come to you, wherever you sit, whatever you've done. There may be things that you can't undo. You may have problems that you can't control. But God can make you new. Just as important to hear it, though, this morning, if, you are, if you're a lot more like Nicodemus. Because, friends, just being religious... Just coming to church, maybe even giving your money to the church. Just avoiding the, the sort of big sins that everybody agrees aren't good. Just being well-liked. Whatever else. That's not enough. I wonder, have you ever thought of yourself as being born again? Or did you inherit your Christianity? Has it always been what you know? Don't rest on what you've received, on your upbringing, on your social conditioning by a good family to be nice and well-adjusted. Those are not signs that you have a heart of love for God. Those could be signs that this is just how you choose to serve yourself. Now, that's the need for the new birth. It's what we need It's what everybody, including Nicodemus, must have. It's where we go from lifelessness to life, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh that isn't powerless against temptation or cold towards God and others, one that's moved and warm and loving and alive and pumping with blood. But everything hinges on where we get this new birth that Jesus insists we need. So far, he's just said, you got to have it. He hasn't told us where it's come from. That's everything. That's the difference between life and death. Where do we get this birth? Verse 8 is the key. And it's terrifying news in one sense, but really encouraging news in another sense. Here's what verse 8 says. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Jesus compares the new birth and where it comes from to the wind and its effects. I think the comparison is pretty clear. And with the wind, we can see its effects. We can even hear it. But we can't see it. We can't track it. We don't know exactly where it's going. And above all, we can't control it. Cannot control it. And so it is with those who are born of God's Spirit. Their birth, here's the key. Here's what verse 8 means. The birth of those who are born again, of those who were given new life that they didn't have before, the birth of anyone who hopes to have a place in God's kingdom, their birth is the effect of a force that they can't trace or control. It is God's Spirit and God's Spirit alone that brings life. Now this, at first blush, may not seem very encouraging, right? Because it does tell you that if you've just been moved by what Jesus has said and if you've come aware of the fact that you need something new in you, 
This is telling you you can't get it. You're, you're quite literally stuck. What it's telling you is that you can't do anything about your fundamental need. And the New Testament is really consistent on this point. This isn't just Jesus and John. All through Paul's letters, same thing comes up over and over again. Let me just, give you, let me just point you to a couple examples. In Ephesians chapter 2, one of the great descriptions of the gospel, starts out with what we're like before God comes to us. You know his image for that? Death. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Or Romans 5. Here we're not dead, but it's not much prettier of a picture. You were enemies of God when God reconciled you. When God made peace, it wasn't because you came around. You were enemies actively fighting against him when God made peace with you. Or in a passage that sounds remarkably like ours, Titus chapter 3. Maybe my favorite summary of what the gospel message is, the good news that Jesus came to give us, is Titus chapter 3. There, we're, we're set up not as dead or as enemies, but here's, again, not much more of a flattering picture. Here's how, here's how Paul describes what we are before God comes to us. Foolish, disobedient, slaves to passions and pleasures. Does that sound familiar? Given to malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. Consistent picture, right? Paul's and Jesus, same picture. Where you were, lifeless. But, but, Paul continues in Titus 3, when the goodness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not by works done by us, but by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, by water and spirit. Friends, the message of Christianity is that we have no more chance of getting for ourselves what we really need than a dead man has of hearing your call to sit up and give him a handshake. We can try to clean ourselves up. We can try to be better. But our best efforts are just putting clothes on a dead body. You guys seen Weekend at Bernie's? Where, uh, where some college kids, I guess, come to an uncle's house for a party, and he's dead. They want the party to go on. So they dress him up and set him in the middle of the living room. Maybe put a drink in his hand. It looks like he's just partying, just sort of chilled, fitting the atmosphere. But he's dead. Got clothes on, got a drink in his hand, dead. I want you to think about the best that you can do to clean up your act as nothing more than putting clothes on Uncle Bernie. Because that's the way the New Testament describes us. There is no recovery for us. There is no recovery for which we can be responsible, for which we can take credit. Much as we like it, we will not, if we're going to recover we will not end up as the hero of our recovery story. If we're to have life and cleansing, it must be God that gives it and he blows like the wind under nobody's control. But, oh friends, there is life in that promise. It's discouraging in one sense if what you want is to be the hero of your recovery story. But if you've come to realize that you don't have it in you, that you just can't make yourself better? Well, then this is a promise that is life-giving indeed. Because this promise held out to you is that there is no one, there is no one who can't be made new because it is God's power that makes you new. Think about the power that makes you new as the same power that formed the mountains, 
the same power that's driving in this storm over us, even right now as we speak, the same power that numbered the stars and gives them all their names, that power unleashed in you is a power that can make you new. Friends, you don't want to control your recovery. You can't. It's a dead end. But there is one who can make you new no matter what you've done, no matter what you can't undo. You you can be new because God has the power to make you new. Can you are you one who cannot imagine not feeling the way you do when you wake up? If you've ever been depressed, you know what I'm talking about. When you wake up and then there's those couple of minutes or a couple of seconds even where you don't remember how sad you are and then it kicks in. If you're one who cannot imagine not waking up that way with a consciousness of all that's wrong in you and with your world, one who cannot imagine not struggling the way you are, not waking up to a reality defined by failure and pain, if that's you, friends, hear this promise and know that you are no further from healing. You are no further from healing than the one who's always done right, who's always seemed to have it all together, who's always seemed to get everything they want out of life. There are no degrees of deadness. You are dead or alive, and all of us start out dead. But God can make us alive. Now, what I want to do to close is point ahead to what's coming next week. One of the classic, most important fruits of new birth. I just want to point you there today, because we don't have time, and come to it next week. It's in verses 9 to 15. They're hard to unpack and figure out. Nicodemus is like, how can this be? How can I get to new life? How can the Spirit give me this? What would that look like? And Jesus' answer to him in verses 9 to 15 isn't entirely clear. He talks about the difference between earthly things and heavenly things and not being able to understand earthly things. How are you going to understand heavenly things? And he talks about the Son of Man going up and coming down. And then he talks about a serpent being lifted up and that he's, he is like a serpent lifted up. What is going on there? I, there's some extent to which I can't answer that question. It's a little bit confusing and, and unclear. But here is what I think. Here's the gist of it, and here's what we'll unpack together next week. I think the heavenly things he's talking about are things that you cannot understand and love unless the Spirit gives you life, unless the Spirit gives you eyes to see. That's what makes them heavenly. That's what makes Nicodemus, someone who's not been born again, unable to see them. What are those heavenly things? I think that's what Jesus unpacks at the end of the paragraph. The heavenly thing that Jesus wants you to see, the heavenly thing upon which you being in the kingdom hinges, the heavenly thing that you won't look at and love unless God does a work in your heart, has a lot to do with the Son of Man being lifted up like a serpent. That serpent references to a passage in the Old Testament, book of Numbers, where Moses and the people of Israel are fighting their way through the desert. They've been grumbling and complaining. They were un- ungrateful for all God had already done to redeem them. And God punishes them. 
He sends snakes that are poisonous in to bite them. And when you get bit, you die. It's a cause and effect thing that never varies. They cry out to God for mercy and he hears them. And his act of mercy is to create a picture of the curse itself. A picture of a snake. Hold it up on a pole. And if you get bit, and if you look to that, God heals you. Now, that's a little bit of a, that's a pretty strange story, honestly. In its context, it's, it's, it's not fully understand. I think if you, if you didn't have this reference, it would seem to be a little bit bizarre. Jesus is saying that story was all about me. There's a little hint of what I came to do. I am the serpent lifted up on a stick. I am the curse to whom you look for healing and life. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. He's talking about the fact that the new birth shows up when you look on Christ crucified and you love it, not hate it. See, this wasn't what anybody was looking for. Right? Without the new birth, the crowds who believed in his name because of all the powerful signs he was doing would have run from him. They did run from him. They called for his death even because they weren't looking for a guy who was going to hang on a cross. They might end up on a cross. They wanted to be on the ground floor of something big. They wanted to be insiders on a movement that was going to change the world. They wanted power. That's why they attached themselves to Jesus. They wouldn't love him lifted up unless they had a new set of eyes. And it's no different today. Today it just sounds ridiculous. What, God punishes his own son and somehow that gets us off the hook? It's scandalous and ridiculous at best, maybe offensive at worst. We're going to unpack that a little bit next week. But what Jesus is claiming is clear enough, I think. For all the, the unclear elements in that paragraph, what he's claiming is clear enough. The effect of the Spirit on you when you have new, new birth is that when you look on Jesus crucified, you look on him and believe and find in him eternal life. That's what we pray for when we pray for the Spirit to be at work in us. To help us to see and believe the cross is a thing of life and beauty. You want a deeper experience of that life? Go deeper into the gospel. You want to experience the new life the Spirit has come to promise you? Go further into the cross and pray to him for eyes to see it. You want, you want a, an experience of God that's sweeter? You want your worship to be more powerful? Then look to Christ, because that's what the angels are singing about now, and it's what they're going to be singing about for all eternity. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and riches and honor. You want to praise with more heart? Look to the cross and sing with the angels. And the Spirit's power and effects on you are first and foremost, to give you a taste for what God has done for you in Jesus. The only way to get that is by prayer. So let's pray together now, friends. Father, you have made such sweet promises to us, and we want to believe them and live from them, to cling to them and find hope and life in them. And we especially want to, want to experience this life that you've described here, through your Son, a life that's defined by a heart that loves you and loves those who are made in your image more than we love ourselves. We want that. We want that for ourselves and for our community. But we are powerless to, to, to control the wind that gives that life. We want you. And we ask that you would help us, that you would give us hearts and eyes that are enlightened to taste the riches of what you've promised to us. 
Help us, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. souls by sin afflicted bow with fruitless sorrow by the broken law convicted through the cross behold the crown look to Jesus mercy flows through him alone take them an offering. Uh, parents invite you to go and get your children and then come back quickly and join us for the benediction and for the last song together. Redeemer and friend Who would have thought
Winter 